If you could just say your name and, uh, and, and maybe your church, and then it'll help. Hi, I'm Rowan, Auckland EV in Auckland. Um, we've heard people? a little... New Zealand. Yeah, it's New Zealand. We've heard a little that. about... Um, <laughs> Sorry. Let's anytime you're ready. Um, you've heard a little about uh, theological education. Yesterday yeah. in some breakout sessions with coaches, Ed, you were saying that, um, that in some ways... It was a stat you gave us I'd love you to give right now. Uh, on a, a three-day boot camp versus a three-year theological education and what results happened four years after that. I want to reflect then on how we think through that theologically. Can you give us that stat? No. It was a private stat for a small group of coaches. Okay. Uh, no, no, I don't mind at all. Uh, don't keep our secrets, man. All right, so, so my, my PhD dissertation was on the uh, systems, like that church plan ecosystem I showed you, both their development and their current implementation. And one of the questions I asked on a, uh, and I don't, I don't think it's the same, but we have like a three-year MDiv. Do you have a three, is it three-year MDiv here as well? Uh, BTH. BTH, okay. You four-year BTH. So you get your four-year undergrad, and then you get a three-year MDiv. And so what I did, I happened to have enough of a sample where I could cross-tab the church planters who, a bunch of them, I had 600 in the study, but, but of, I, don't, I forget how many have this. It was mainly a seminary-based sample. So I could cross-tab and say, all right, the seven years of education, these are the ones who went to a three-day boot camp, and these are the ones who didn't go to a three-day boot camp. And so I compared the two. So they, the both sets of the sample, because I eliminated those who didn't have the MDiv, both sets of the sample, both Group A and Group B, were seminary MDiv graduates. Group A went to a three-day boot camp that took them through a very robust process. Here are 21 lessons you need to know. Here's how to develop a core group. Here's how to build your finances. Here's how to do this. Exceedingly practical. And so they had that three-day only church planting. Because remember... By and large, there's not a lot of classes on church planting in seminary just because, and don't be mad at seminaries for that. There's not enough students for that um, in church planting field. So then I compared the two, and those who were, um, who went through uh, the three-day, both went through seven years. Those who went through the three-day training were substantially larger four years later than those who did not. We could actually see a statistically significant difference uh, between the two. And so, so, so what, what does that tell us? What that tells us is um, seminary, seminary is not generally designed to prepare you to understand the systems that are unique to a church planting context. Um, it's generally designed to teach you how to understand the Word of God, to not be a heretic, uh, you know, things like that that are exceedingly important. And then the systems part that's unique to church planting seems to need another place that is uh, kind of tacked on top. could be a short amount of time because pastoring is similar to planting, but there's also enough difference that that made a statistically significant difference between the two. So is there a question from that? Yeah, go. Right. So the question was, um, thanks. The question was, um, so given that, what, what's the role of theological education versus a three-day boot camp? I think I misunderstood you in the room, though. Um, and what you just said there. So can you just clarify, had both groups done three-year yes. theological education? Yes. Okay. They both had done a master's degree in divinity. Sure. Yeah. And so yep, so what I would say is, is that a master's in divinity alone probably won't prepare you for understanding the systems that are in a church planting unless you've taken church planting-specific training in your graduate program. Are there any stats of without that theological education? Say it again. Are there any stats without that theological education? Well, yeah, that's, we that's, a, that's, more of a, camp? that's more of a missiological. I mean, I don't have any stats where I've studied a sample of that. But um, so, no, I'm not, not directly like I can tell you the statistically significant differences now. Ed, um, I, I mean, sure, before you, because I mean, why don't you yeah, weigh I, in a little I bit on the theological I, I think um, there are studies 
the uh, I think it's come out of Germany, isn't it? Uh, with the eight series of health indicators in a church. Yeah, National Church Development Study. Yeah, they, I, I read many years ago they reported that one of the key indicators for growth in a church is that you've not done theological education. And so people who were planning churches, running churches who weren't theologically educated were growing churches faster and bigger than people who were. And so one of the, uh, one of the conclusions from that kind of research was, uh, is, ought, you know, this is the way it is, therefore we ought not educate theologically. And, um, and I, I do think there is a danger with theological education in that... Uh, handled badly and thought through inadequately, it can teach you to think about, say, the sovereignty of God in a way that it diminishes your own sense of personal responsibility and my part in the outcomes. And so one of my great passions, and I I think it's partly what Ed's saying too, is that uh, one of our dangers is we can come out of theological education thinking that God is sovereign, I just preach the word and pray, and he will give the growth, a great biblical passage, 1 Corinthians 3, but we don't then read on, of course, to 1 Corinthians 9, when the Apostle Paul will do anything and everything to ensure that the gospel goes out and as many people are saved as possible. And so there's this, I want to keep pressing into us the importance of theological education, but the kind of theological education that equips us to realise we are able to influence by our leadership the, out, the, the growth, what happens, how many people are saved, how many people mature and grow, and to stop us making excuses mm. and stop us going, it's just hard soil, uh, it's just the blessing of God on them and not me, I'm being faithful, it's all okay. The New Testament makes it very clear we are held accountable in some fashion for the outcomes and we've got to take that seriously and own it. Ask the questions about what we're bringing, what we're not doing, how can we do it differently to bring about better outcomes, mm. which is very much what we're seeing. And we, had a, we had a good breakfast this morning, kind of bonded over a shared concern that we would be uh, theologically driven, but uh, out of that theological drivenness, comes a, a, uh, a, not pragmatism, but a practical wisdom about how best to live that out in churches that are both faithful and intentionally fruitful in their ministry and mission. Yeah. We can't hide behind the sovereignty of God. That's I good think word. that's what, what, what we often word. do. Yeah. But, I, but I do think you're trying to push a little bit on, all right, is, is what Ed's saying that theological education is bad? Um, and so let me, let me not underplay what I think you're getting at. Um, Roland Allen, and this is probably, you may be conflating the two things. Roland Allen would have basically said, and use this terminology, but Roland Allen in the spontaneous expansion of the church and causes that hinder it basically lays out a thesis that ed- educational attainment and church planning uh, capacity are inversely proportional. Um, and so what I would say is, is that historically we have found um, that, and Roland Allen among others, and missiologists, particularly in uh, the two-thirds world, would have said that, that, uh, that imposing Western educational systems on uh, indigenous peoples slows down the work. And I, I think there's absolutely no question that that would be the case. I'd be a little nervous about the European research for reasons that probably are too long to go into. Um, but what I would say is this. Theological education is not the goal. It's a tool. Uh, the goal is the advance of the gospel and well-trained pastors who meet the qualifications of First Timothy chapter 3. It's, to me, an exceedingly helpful tool worth using 
at the same time, it should be a, it should be a partner, not the driver of the mission. And I think when theological education is a partner and not the driver, I think it's in the right place. When it's the driver, it can become the hindrance and not ultimately the tool to get to the goal. So. And I think I would agree with that. That's yeah. Yeah. Cool. I think it expressed the same way. Uh, is this on? Yep. Uh, so Mikey Lynch from uh, Tasmania. Um, no one's told Ed that actually it's Tasmania the jokes are made about, not Adelaide. So oh, really? I'm okay. Well, that's helpful. That. Yeah. So everyone, Adelaide need to have someone to look down on. Mm. And uh... <laughs> um, To reach Australia, we need not just churches, but church networks or movements. And many of us represent that from denominations or hubs of churches. I think Ed mentioned in passing that tra- training network leaders is a different thing again to leaders or leaders of leaders. And I was just interested to hear some comment on that because I think we've either seen intuitive, charismatic network leaders who just rise up and do that but struggle to do succession um, or else in Australian spirit and in a denominational culture just share it out and take turns. You know, the next guy has a go who may not have the skills or be able to have those skills to lead a a dynamic network movement-y thing. So what are some of the ways that we can train or equip those network leaders and identify them in Queensland or Western Australia or Tasmania or, or within our a Presbyterian or a Baptist context? How do we think about that? It seems that you would be, to me, I look and I see you as doing a lot of that, so perhaps you'd be best to answer that. Well, well I, I have some reluctances about it. I, I, there is a movement theory that says the key to movements in history has been the key leader. And I, in my limited work in that area, I don't see that as always being the case. So, you know, the great revival through Great Britain and then into New England, you had a number of leaders who God raised up. You know, the, so the Whitfields, the Wesleys, Jonathan Edwards, you had a, a number of different men who, and there was no one particularly who was the movement leader. And I, I do think we need to be cautious about identifying from history the key and we might be wrong with having identified that and then imposing that on the key to actually making a work across Australia work is to have that. One of the, one of the great things I think about Geneva and what's happening here is that there's a, there's a number of people, men and women, that God is using to stir others and I think that that's healthy and good and we ought not impose on it uh, this kind of network leader model and insist that it be the case. I, so I have a reluctance about it. I, I, I am concerned. I think we all just get in and get about doing what we do. And if, if we each give what we can give, God will stir and we think smart and wise about all of that. And there would be my initial reactions. I'll, I'll, I'll weigh in with a, an agreement with maybe an example. Um, I think that there are, you know, the great man theory is what, you know, you're sort of referring to great men, great movements. Um, but I... Uh, I, I'm cautious about that too, because I mean, who's who's the great Moravian? Nobody knows any Moravians. Um, the, but they did a great, you know, great job mission movement. We've all heard of them. Um, yeah, Dinzendorf, but he said, "Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten." And ironically, we quote that uh, with his name <laughs> attached to it. Um, yeah, but but that movement goes way beyond, and he's long dead, and there's no there's no there's no names that sort of go on from there. Um, so so what I would say is. Um, Whereas, whereas other movements, we sort of see successors and we can name them. It seems to me that for movements, 
um, to be successful nationally or regionally, they seem to have um, they seem to have some some key representative leaders who are what I call in kind of a hub and spoke partnership. So, for example, I just came back from South Africa, um, working with a not dissimilar network to uh, Geneva um, called Advance, but they they have like three or four. Uh, what the term has been movement leaders, but those movement leaders have chose to, in a, in a lot of ways, the way you, Mikey, and, and, uh, and Al, and, and uh, you know, have sort of done, um, you know, with Scott and others here. And so I do think there's a sense that there is a gifting on some leaders that it's wise and appropriate for them to bring that gifting together in such a way that it's not just one solitary individual. I think that's one of Mikey met reference in the midst of that is that person passes away and their success and issues. I could name some movements that are really struggling with succession right now. But I think a team of um, those kinds of, the term I would use apostolic, but not in the sense that some movements use it, but these teams of apostolic leaders can function together well, create momentum, hold one another accountable, and help shepherd movements um, but again, I want to be real careful. I'm not talking about some of what you've seen in the new apostolic reformation. I'm talking about this sent impulse, but also cause them to come together and want to see movements birthed in a, in a nation or a region. So, so I would say that there's a place for that kind of leader, but that kind of leader alone, I think leads to some problems in succession and other things as well. And the movements tend not to survive the death of their dynamic leader. And, and I do want to call us to and I, maybe this is the key of a, a, a leader, but you, you want to be called to an idea yeah. and not That's a good. person. It's not about you or, or, or Mikey who even asked the question. It's about, you know, you're the, again, you're the, you're the tool. The goal is the multiplication of churches yeah, that you're yeah, working yeah, together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Evangelization of a thousand churches into existence across Australia. There's an idea mm. which a, a number of us can be used by circumstance and situation and stage of life to placard and, and make much of, but you, you don't rally around any of us, I trust. Because <laughs> you know, one of the dangers for the Redeemer thing is Keller. I mean, one of the great blessings is Keller, but one of the dangers is Keller because you don't want to be gathered around Keller. And I don't think anyone in the Redeemer movement wants that necessarily, but you, you, there's, a, there's an idea that we want to gather around together and be captured by together and give our lives to so that when we fade and die, the idea lives on and you can, someone can pick it up and run with it. And I think that's what even, you know, talking about Keller, the Gospel Coalition has done, Keller and Carson and then others get together and they say, but they are leaders of influence who are using their influence towards that idea. They're the tool, the goal in the case of the Gospel Coalition is gospel centrality. So I think, I think there's a place for uh, great leaders, and I would say, and I think I'm going to disagree with you, I would say, I, you say I don't want you to rally around us. Well, I, I would say that I, I, I think many of the, the men here are following you as you follow Christ, and so I think that's a good thing. I think you're a good leader worth emulating, as are some of the other leaders here, so I think that's necessary, but, but again, I, I also I get totally what you're saying. I just think we've got to not be afraid to say there's going to have to be a great movement, uh, if it's going to be a great movement in Australia, there's going to be movement leaders who rise up in Perth and movement leaders who rise up in, in Brisbane and, and there's going to be teams that, and, and so it's going to take that team ship and there are going to be some like you who are uniquely gifted and like some of the others who people do rally around. So that's the part where I would want to, I, I still, I still want to rally around you. And Keller, I'm fine rallying around Keller. He's the fourth member of the Trinity. I told you that already. 
<laughs> oh, and I'm scared. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really scared. I do not want people to rally around me. Fair enough. I, I don't want EV Church people to rally around Andrew mm-hmm. Hurt. I want them to rally around the cause of the gospel yeah. that we're articulating. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the key to leadership, actually. Fair enough. Um, I think we're a little different on that. I think we disagree a bit. I want them <laughs> to rally around great, great men of God who are going to who are going to call them to something bigger than themselves. I want I want people like you who they rally around not to think they're rallying around you. But I still I don't see movements without great leaders who call people towards movements. So we'll just disagree. We'll disagree. Yeah. Jerk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the health long term is that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that was like the longest answer to any question ever. So thank you, everyone, for being here. God bless you. We'll see you next year. The one question is done. Um, hi, Renee from Salt Church, Wollongong. Um, <laughs> there's a, uh, we, went, we planted salt two years ago, um, so we went through the assessment process and that kind of thing. And as a wife, uh, there seems to be this um, big push that as a couple, this is something that you're embarking on, and um, it's very much, uh, this is something... You as a couple are, are starting despite how many people you take with you and that kind of thing. Um, but I guess realities of life and stage of church life and that kind of thing. Um, as a wife, sometimes it can feel like we get relegated a little bit to the side or we're not as much a part of the big vision setting. Or um, I assume that it is important because because it was in the beginning for the wife, especially to be a part of this, uh, the vision and the, where we're headed as a church. How do you encourage um, husbands to help encouraging their wives to be a, a part of that? And how do you encourage wives to encourage themselves to continue to, I guess, be a part of the big picture of where church is going and, and that kind of stuff? It's good. I think you should talk about wives and not talk about husbands. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. Uh, the, uh, yeah, that's true. I have three daughters. Um, the head counselor at Camp Estrogen. Uh, <laughs> let, let, let me, and my wife gives me permission to make that joke. Uh, I'm a good complimentary and I do whatever she says. Um, you know, let, let, me, let, me, let me say first that one of the things that took... Um, took me a long, took us a long time to figure out is that there's not one way to be a church planter's wife or a pastor's wife. Because um, what I kept seeing is, I kept seeing, um, you know, some, of the, some, some wives would be these, like, teaching and leading and leading ministries and, 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 and or, you know, in some places singing or whatever it may be. There's almost a stereotype in, among many pastor's wives in the United States that they sing. Um, and... Um, so it's probably for, not for the best in some cases. Um, and you know what? You know what Donna wanted to do. Donna wanted to be a a person, a lay person in the church who used her spiritual gifts to serve others as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. First Peter chapter four verse ten. She didn't want to be a key leader in the church. Now I want you not to get it. So oh, you must have a godless wife. Uh, my wife is godlier than all of you put together. I mean, my wife was, was winning her neighborhood to Christ when she was 14 years of age. And I started dating her when we were 16. She was, she's just an amazing godly woman. She's brilliant. She's articulate. She has a master's degree. She's all things. But her spiritual gifting is nothing like 
what I found in the, what we found in the majority of pastors' wives in our context. And so we were kind of guilty for years. And, and so here's what we found. What we found is the right balance is the balance you find in your family. And it's going to change in stages. You know, we had three little kids. It was very different than now that our kids are older. Not that old, but nine-year-old. And, you know, your kids are older than that. But what I would say is, is don't look to, particularly when we get sort of a, a movement going and there are a lot of church planters who are sort of similar to one another. One of the things that happen is they're sort of like, this is what a church planting wife looks like. Here's what I would say the right kind of church planting wife looks like. The kind of biblical description of a husband, the biblical description of a wife, and then, like all believers, finding a ministry and gifting within the church, but the, the level of, like you talked about, being involved in the vision, all that. Here's what, here's what my wife said. See, my wife would say, we'd meet together. She'd say, whatever you guys decide, I'm happy to jump in and support whatever you'd like to do. Donna's not sitting around in the planning meeting. She would, she would hate that. But she's involved. She's serving others. Actually, she's, her ministry right now has been she's, been, she's been tutoring children of English uh, as a second language among illegal aliens, undocumented immigrants. That's kind of an extension of the ministry of our church. So, so that's the thing. And maybe I'm reading too much into your question, but I, I just want to say to you, um, there's not a mold there's a biblical description of husbands and wives. Um, there's, I think the, you need to be in, but how you're in is going to be dependent upon your gifts. Donna's never been in a planning session. Donna, um, Donna's part of our church because we're in this marriage and we're doing this together for the glory of God. And it's the greatest thing for our family to be in this together. So that's my, my caution would be, don't look for this is what it should look like because I saw five or six others and that's what it would looks like, what it looks like, uh, be biblical husbands and wives and then live that out as a pastor's wife in the church. Yeah. Which, which is the problem with my wife. Uh, I think she's really, you're going to say that in front of everybody. (laughs) You guys need some counseling. Uh, uh, she is, uh, much more godly and wonderful and extraordinary than your wife. <laughs> but the problem with Kathy is that um, she is a very competent, capable, driven woman, and uh, she is one of the one of the dangers is you can do exactly that. You can look at Kathy and go, uh, you know, there's the wife you're meant to be, who's yeah. running the women's ministry and uh, you know doing everything except look after her husband. But she's that's. <laughs> That's not the model of... It's uh, going to be a cold night at your house after that. <laughs> she, she's not here. Oh, she's not here. Trust me. She will hear... Oh, oh she is. No. Boom! <laughs> oh, I was feeling free. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh you're going to be free, I can assure you. Uh, uh, <laughs> she is extraordinary and wonderful. And yeah, yeah. Supportive <laughs> and beautiful. And we couldn't have done what we've done without her. And yeah, It's... Um, but, but the stage thing's important too. I think that uh, it's not just, a, it, it, I mean, Ed mentioned it, but it's the mix of who you are, husband, wife, you're unique, you guys have got to work out who you are in your context and so on. But it is that stage thing. That's what we found particularly important to recognise was that, that women, are, if I can talk as a man, and perhaps Cathy should be up here doing this, but um, uh, I, she would overshadow me and make me feel insecure. It's so. too late, man. You're not, you not fixing what you said earlier, I'm, I'm no matter how much you say. I can. Um, <laughs> well, we might in a second, but she'll, she will, she'll take over. It, um, <laughs> it, it seems to me that there's, a, there's an important thing to recognise. Ministry is not just extensive, it's intensive and extensive. And so there's phases you go through where, say for a woman particularly, with the early childhood years, 
you are very much into intensive ministry, yeah. but it's ministry. So you're intensively into discipling uh, children, let's say, in the household context, and that absorbs an enormous amount of energy. And, and that's, do not ever buy into the thought that that's somehow a, a second-rate work. Right. That's right. And, you know, I wish I was, if I was seeking first the kingdom, I'd be out there mm. running groups and proclaiming the gospel and run the group called Three Little Children, yeah. you know, and um, do the discipleship with three, because the impact those three kids raised in a Christian home, a ministry-minded home will have, will multiply you That's many, right. many times. Right. So value that at the early stage and don't be frustrated that you can't have an extensive ministry, both ministries, you see. But as time's gone on, Kathy is... Um, uh, with her particular gifts and so on, we've had opportunity with our kids to just really dump them and, and run. <laughs> and so Kathy is now able to do much, much more than she ever did. And, uh, and the kids rejoice in that and delight in that. Do you want to add anything, Kathy? Yes, she does. See, this oh, is my there wife. You go. There on, you go. Come on down. You know what Donna would say at this point? She'd say, no way. <laughs> come on. You got I think we have another. Oh, there. Come on up here and stay. You're just moving in. We like it. We like it. This is what I live with. Yeah, good. Use use the mic. Use the mic, though. Um, one thing to add: um, Ed's point about using your gift in whatever way you can is is really helpful. And then I think one thing that the wife has that's really important is you know your husband's dreams for the church. You started that together. You talked about it together. And you will always know his mind, his hopes, his concerns, um, his failures better than anyone else on staff. And so in that sense, you're in it together, I think, in a way that no one else is on staff. And so it's not so much doing stuff on the ground. It's that relationship and that knowledge that you have and that ability to support him in it mm. that no one else has that you can have <clears throat> that I think is... Yeah, um, the, the chief job for the wife, the core. The core thing that you have as a planter's wife that no one else has. Yeah. It's a good word. And, and can I add, husbands and wives, you, you do need to remember that um, there's, a, there's a prior relationship that you have, and I think one of the most helpful ways we've conceived it is uh, our first most... In, our priority is the church of God. That's our first priority. But the first most important family in the Church of God is our family. And so we do keep conceiving of, uh, you know, if another family rang in pastoral crisis, we'd drop everything to go and help. Well, here's a pastoral family that we need to be concerned about and drop everything for. And make sure when you have days off, you don't feel that you need to share all the problems of church with your husband that he can now fix because you've got his ear. Mm -hmm. It's a little thing that we do need to keep watching as we um, we need to have husband and wife time yep. as well you should not you should not be the conduit to your husband and at the same time one of the things that we had to be careful about is we'd have conflict in the church and i'd tell donna and then the conflict would be resolved and i wouldn't tell donna and so she just constantly got to hear well this person's a jerk but then th three days later they're like man we're loving the lord praying together and you know, so, so it's, it, there, there's, it's, it, it's a careful balance that has to be struck there. I think it's real key. Which means you need to have the freedom to keep talking together and yeah. working on your, your right. time away to get some space so that there is a warmth and engagement that's, that's open. And don't feel guilty, wives, to tell your husband to stop. 
that's that's another thing that you think you would be fair to say you've wrestled with is because you're so much in it you don't want to ever pull back but yeah. sometimes we need to yeah and i will tell you that i've been married for 27 years and in those 27 years one time has my wife walked up on a stage uh, and had any conversation with me in a church setting and that was in brazil we were doing a marriage and sex seminar and uh so i that was the one time she said i'll go answer questions so i didn't really know how to respond to that uh but uh but i will tell you you know not 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 all are going to be comfortable doing this i'm so thankful for your gifts i'm thankful for my wife's gifts and i think we can we can uh, not force people into a mold and just let me just say church planner wives uh be free of the guilt and uh, be who you are in christ and be who you are in your marriage so um richard wilson presbyterian church of victoria um Andrew, Ed's just told us about the joys and the wonders of a three-day boot camp. So my question is, when does Geneva Push start the three-day boot camp? Uh, well, what is it? It's Wednesday. We could start tomorrow. Are you up for it? Yeah. Look, yeah, we need to... Uh, one of the things about what we're doing here, you need to appreciate, is that it's us together. And so um, it, it isn't... As we work out this together, we're making it up as we go along. So make sure you keep feeding in together with each other what we can do to help this whole movement move forward. That's good. And one of the things we need to actually reflect on is, yeah, is there a way we can... We're conscious of not putting on too many conferences. We, we, everyone's busy. But the work of church planting, we need to accelerate... And if there's things that we can do that will take time, it's always going to cost, that will help us accelerate things, let's, let's do it. I'm up for it, uh, and I know all the guys around are up for it, so let's, let's think about it, pursue it further. I do love the idea. Hi, I'm Owen from up in Toowoomba in Queensland, so 150 kilometres inland from Brisbane. Um, I've got two questions. Um, one of the things that we've been discovering with the conversations is a lot of the contexts are in suburbs of cities where there's 20, 30, 50,000 people. Uh, for the majority of the guys that we will be doing church planning with down the track, we're talking about small, rural and remote communities from less than 5,000 with satellite little hubs of you know, 20, 50, 100 people around them. First question I've got is, um, from a mythological point of view, what are some of the models that's happening around the world with that? The second thing is, from an educational point of view, these, some of these guys, you know, they might be 800 kilometres from Brisbane. For them to go to Brisbane to study is going to destroy that little local community in many ways. What education systems can we develop for people who can't afford to go away, the local church can't afford for them to go away? Um, financially, it's very difficult, and there's no internet. Surprisingly, that is the case out there. So what kind of educational systems can we develop for that? Well, let me, let me tackle the first one, then maybe for you the second one. Um, the, the, I, I, I grew up outside of New York City. I've only planted in uh, major urban centers, uh, so I don't know. Uh, but I will tell you some places I think to look and to go. There's two go-to books that I refer when people ask about the smallest towns uh, for church planting. Uh, one is a little book out of the UK. It's called Rural Church Planting. I apologize, I don't remember the author's name. It's a little green book, uh, but it's just called Rural Church Planting. If you Google that specific title, um, it looks at church planting in rural communities in the UK um, and has some real helpful resources. The, the, one, the other one is by Tom Niebel. 
It's called uh, Big Dreams in Small Places, and it is a specific look at church planting in uh, small community contexts. And it appears, again, and I, and I don't speak from experience here, I speak from, from research and observation here, it appears that there are two directions that they're going simultaneously. Sometimes we end up with what we call a field of churches in some of these things, because we have towns within distance, not dissimilar to a Methodist, Methodist circuit rider. Uh, back in the day. Uh, the other approach is uh, more of a, uh, a consolidation. There might be one larger church that reaches three or four towns, and small groups might be there, but then they gather together if it's in within a reasonable you know, number of kilometer driving distance. As, and so both of those models are reflected in those, in those books. I would say ultimately... Um, the model that most use, I don't, I think I did this in a breakout. I have people raise their hand if they use the, the contemporary church model, start some small groups, have a public worship service, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that tends not to work as well when particularly, well, a lot of times people will like use names of churches that aren't identifiable with their denomination. They're trying to reach people who would anonymously come to church. There's no such thing as anonymously coming to church of a town in a town of a thousand. And so that has to do, if, if I were in there, I would just consistently seek to, based on what others have said, build relationships, be seen as part who loves this community, unpack your bags, don't, don't pine away, long for Brisbane, Gold Coast, Sydney, love the small town where you are, show the love of Christ to them, and then a long-term commitment, because it's hard to break into a community that's been that way for a long time. It has formed strong bonds, not where a Sydney the, the bonds tend to be uh, different because of the urbanness, uh, the urban context, any urban context. But those would be the two resources that I think would be best. And you may have more about rural church planning than, than, than I do. Look, one of the great things about Geneva is that what we've pulled together under God is a, a group of people who are working in uh, central Sydney, uh, middle of Melbourne, Adelaide, you know, all the big cities but also uh, men who are working in the rural settings. And so, you know, I look, just off the cuff, Bruce Bennett's sitting up. I saw him a little earlier. We're over there. Bruce over here? Yeah, now Bruce is working out at um, Orange. Now, it's a large rural setting, but he's had a great deal of experience in the whole Armidale region, uh, converted into a church at Ningen, uh, which is like a place of 50 people and hundred dogs or something I don't know it's like a, it, it's a, so my point is I haven't got the answer but I know in this network we've got people who are working in exactly those environments who know others who are working in that environment and who have uh, a considerable wealth of experience in thinking through theological education whether it, if, if you do it by correspondence which is there's great correspondence courses but will that help or hinder uh, what are the costs in doing that long term Guys like Bruce are worth chasing through, yeah. And I, yeah. And there are great networks great. that are often formed by people. Like, if you Google World Church, you'll find um, there's all kinds of networks. There's UK, US, uh, some degree South, there's some South African. I don't know of any Australian. Um, and I know of several Canadian, but they're actually networks of people who are kind of talking about the sociocultural dynamics of small church that are different. And that might be something even here. We, you, uh, you know, mentioned some already. There might be five or six of you who could, you know, start a conversation over the Internet because you're far. Well, you don't have Internet, but, um, but my guess is you'll probably have some access on phones, things that sort. But if not, to find some way to begin to network with ideas within even Geneva Push and then even possibly beyond. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's yeah. Do you want to thank these guys for their wisdom? Yeah. Thank you.